Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Ariana Betty, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Amsterdam. Her new book, Against Facts, is just out from the MIT Press. The British philosopher and logician Bertrand Russell once said that it is a truism that there are facts. For example, the planets revolve around the sun, 2 plus 2 equals 4, elephants are bigger than mice, and so on. In Against Facts, Betty argues that not only is it not a truism that there are facts, but that on either of the basic views of what facts are, there aren't any. Betty argues that we don't need to posit facts either as truth-makers or as the reference of that clauses. We can express truths about the world and provide an adequate semantics without needing recourse to entities called facts. Her finely articulated discussion of facts and her rebuttal of such defenders of facts as Russell, David Armstrong, Kit Fine, and other philosophers will be a primary source of discussions about facts and related notions of propositions and states of affairs for years to come. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Ariana Betty, are you there? Oh, yes, I'm here. Delighted to be here. Uh, well, welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thank you. Uh, I'm very pleased to be talking about your new book, Against Facts. Um, it should be a very... Very interesting conversation about, you know, contemporary metaphysics and, and discussion about facts and propositions and states of affairs and um, all sorts of related cognate notions that have to do with, you know, establishing and speaking truths. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, before we get into the, the book itself, maybe you can say a word about uh, your background as a philosopher, how you, how you came to philosophy and how you came to write this particular book. So right, I so my interest in philosophy started. I, I, I would say, especially in high school. So in high school, I was one of those fortunate people who could study philosophy. And what fascinated me about it was that um, simply the level of abstractness. So I just wanted to go to the most abstract way to looking at things. Um, so I. I took philosophy, I took up philosophy in uh, a university, and I was immediately fascinated by logic. Uh, I did not become a logician, or at least not one of those technical logicians that prove theorems, but I, my attention was caught by history of logic. So, in fact, I become a historian of logic, and what fascinates me the most is, in fact, tracing concepts through time, and that's what I do, in fact, right now. 
And I happened to stumble on the concept of facts at a, a fact at a certain point while writing my dissertation. Um, my PhD dissertation was on time, truth, and logic from Bolzano, so an uh, Austrian philosopher, um, to the Lvovoso school, so the Polish school of logic. And in that uh, span, so in, in that period that I was studying, um, it emerges a connection between uh, truth in language and what is called the ontology of truth. So whatever in reality that corresponds to a truth or a truth statement. Um, and what I saw, what I experienced is that in my dissertation, this uh, particular point of exactly what in time or in this stretch of time in this period, in this tradition, uh, corresponded exactly to truths was not completely satisfactory. And I was left after having finished my dissertation with the question, but what does exactly correspond to a truth in, say, 19th century uh, conceptualizations on, on, on truth and ontology of truth? And then I discovered that I didn't know that much, and that was... Um, left a bit, um, say, understudied in, in my work back then, and I took up the, the research. I, I followed up with um, uh, studied, studies that were more systematic, say. I stumbled up on the notion, and by uh, in, in wanting to clarify it, I discovered that I was not convinced that facts exist. So I, I, I um, encountered, of course, contemporary uh, writings on facts, on, on propositions, on states of affairs, and I started uh, simply taking up issues with them. Okay, good. Um, so, I mean, one of the, you, you start and end, you sort of bookend the, the book itself, you know, quoting uh, Bertrand Russell, right, famously, mm -hmm. you know, saying that, you know, it, well, it's a truism. Of course there are facts, and then <laughs> we can just go on from there, right? I mean, we yes. just got to take that as a, as a kind of a Maureen fact, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um and, you know, you kind of, you know, very slowly, you know, methodically kind of demolish that view, <laughs> uh, you know, over over two parts, uh, you know, and, you know, each part of the book is devoted to a different kind of basic notion of facts of which there are various iterations. Um, you know, one of those uh, is the was what you call the compositional facts that are sort of you know the states of affairs type, and then the others are the propositional facts, which are the sort of reference of that clause's type. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, but we'll look. We'll we'll talk about each of those types and and why neither of them you know why we don't have to posit either of those types. Mm -hmm. But you in the first chapter you begin by uh, establishing. Um, certain ground rules about, you know, how do we make this decision about whether there is something or not, you know, whether it's facts or yes. or anything else, right? You know, other than, say, maybe what's right in front of our eyes perceptually. But as far as more theoretical or abstract entities goes, you know, things get a little, get a little bit more dicey. So can you, can you say something about um, what your basic methodological you know, sort of the grounding, the groundwork, I should say, the the background of uh, of how your discussion will proceed. Yes, sure. So um, one, I felt that what was needed, and it's something that I'm uh, convinced is uh, more often needed than it seems. Um, so I felt it was needed that I started out by saying, 
um, how I go about the question, how do we decide about what exists? So um, that was quite important because um, the book can be read in two ways. One is um, in this way, so that the book says that facts don't exist, simply. Um, and the other way to read the book is to say, well, uh, the book says that there are no good arguments mm-hmm. for facts or to accept facts. Um, to me, these two questions are actually two sides of the same coin. And the reason is that so I wanted to be very explicit on that. And the reason is that I think that the way we can decide about what exists is only on the basis of a certain kind of arguments. And these arguments are arguments to the best explanation. Um, so that's basically the difference between what exists and what we are justified in assuming that exists, um, given argument to the best explanation, to me, there is no difference between them. So that's something that you, you might or might not accept while reading this book. If you accept the way I go about arguments uh, in favor of the existence of certain entities, um, then um, you would simply agree that there are no facts. Instead, if you don't agree and say, look, um, whatever you can say, however we can argue um, in favor or against certain entities, um, you know, in fact, it's, it, you, you, you do not accomplish this in the book. The only thing you show is that we have no good reason mm-hmm. to accept facts. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's the very general approach to the book. And then... Of course, these these assume certain very specific um, um, a specific shape as regards facts, for instance, because uh, then the next step would be okay. Once that you you arrive to defining what an argument for the best explanation would be in the case of facts, then there is a connection I make between. Um, best explanation and in fact the roles that entities can can play mm-hmm. in an explanation so the next question is okay so what does it mean for an argument to for, for facts or for an entity is to follow or for, to be justified uh, from an argument or by an argument to the best explanation and then i say is that it is um, that there is a reason to accept that a certain entity plays a certain role. So that you have to accept an entity as such um, in a certain role to be essentially played by it. Okay. Is that is this is this clear? Yes. Mm-hmm. You. I mean, you get into the so the the whole idea of you know Quinean ontological commitment later. So, um, but let me just you know. Uh, uh, let, just to kind of locate the discussion, mm-hmm. you know, from the basic, I mean, you know, you're saying there's, there aren't any facts or we have no good reasons to posit facts or we have certain roles and there's no reasons to think that there are these entities, you know, called facts that are essentially, uh, that are essential for filling those roles. Yeah. I mean, those are all kind of different ways of saying the same thing. But, uh, you know, at the same time, just as a, you know, maybe a very flat footed, uh, way to think about it. You're you're not denying that you know uh, that there are facts in the sense that you know the Earth revolves around the Sun and you know two plus two equals four and, and so forth. Um, uh, 
Uh, it's it's a much more technical. Yeah, uh, but how is? Can you say something about how this technical debate, you know, sort of is derived from or or comes out of the ordinary way we talk about you know facts all the time? I mean, yeah, you know, there's a fact that we are engaged in an interview right now or a conversation, right? I mean, I I would talk that way, right? Um, yes. So can you can you just uh, sort of connect our ordinary kind of idea? Well, you know, of course, there are facts. I mean, newspapers are full yeah. of facts, and you know, <laughs> yeah. they, reporters try to get just the facts. You know? Yes, oh, there are of course also expressions such as uh, well, in different languages there are exceptions. Uh, sorry, um, expressions that are used in such a way that the fact seems to be simply an accomplished feat yeah. or something that in your examples is very near to, so as synonymous for as another way to express what you just said. I mean, that I don't deny that there are facts in the sense that the newspapers are full of facts. In that sense, I would say what you actually mean, or you could express this in another way by saying that newspapers are full of true statements or um, statements or things that you say. So something that is part of language that is, uh, accepted as true by um, by a, a certain amount of people uh, that have certain authority, for instance. So, in other words, uh, the you, the expression "fact" in ordinary language um, has many senses. What I deny is that there is one sense, a very technical sense, um, that is used by philosopher. And in the first part of the book, this technical sense is um, called uh, compositional fact. And this is um, a very specific kind of entity, a very specific kind of complex entity that philosopher assumes um, in some cases to be, say, what the world is made of. And in this sense, uh, we are talking of an entity which is complex, that is formally structured meaning is whatever fact you take, this is structured always in the same way, okay? No matter its subject matter, so to speak. Um, There's always the same kind of structure Mm -hmm. uh, facts have. And they have a very special kind of articulation, one can say, a very specific kind of of combination, a way in which they are structured. Um. In technical terms, this is um, called a non-meriological kind of um, glue or, 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 or uh, combination or um, constitution, we can say sometimes. Mm-hmm. That means that uh, these very specific kind of complexes um, have a, a, a also technical kind of articulation. Um, and that's a technical difference indeed. And then I say that this, this kind of, uh, of technical artifacts, this kind of very specific notion that is accepted by certain philosophers, I say that these things we should not accept in the culture of the world. Okay. Um, so, well, let's, let's start with that, that particular conception of facts. I mean, you mm-hmm. give, okay, so in the first part, you know, like chapters two and three, you, uh, you present this, what you call the, the compositional fact. And, and a, mm-hmm. a paradigm example of that is, is David Armstrong, um, and his truthmaker argument, right? His idea that there are, um, uh, there are facts, there are uh, that these, uh, as you put it, they're, they're, 
they are entities kind of or states of affairs maybe you know glued together with this non-meriological glue and mm-hmm. that, and that we need these things to be the truth makers of of our true statements that yeah. you know um so just taking i mean you can t- speak more generally or 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 specify Armstrong's view in particular um, but why, you know, what, what's the motivation for positing, you know, this particular kind of non-meriologically glued together mm-hmm. entity, i.e. compositional mm-hmm. fact, and, you know, and, and what's your basic argument for why the arguments for it just don't hold up? So, um, Armstrong, um, accept, first of all, um, the general context uh, for accepting that, that makes it sensible to accept facts as truth makers, and that's the role they play in this framework, um, is truth. So it's a particular theory of truth that Armstrong accepts. That's a specific variant, a specific version of the so-called correspondence theory of truth, mm-hmm. where you have um, uh, statements in language that have a certain content and they can be true or false when they are truths. Let's say, take a true statement. Um, there's one example I have in the book. I like hedgehogs very much. So <laughs> an example I have in the book is um, a hedgehog that's called Hargo, by the way. So Hargo is lying on Argo's lap. Um, or we can say um, Hargo is lying on Bargo's lap. So where we distinguish the two people. So the, the hedgehog and, and the person. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Suppose you have this statement, and Armstrong would say, so um, it, to to be true, this statement, um, well, what does it mean, in fact? What what makes it true? What In, in what way um, is its truth, of, of this, the, the truth of this statement, uh, grounded in the world? So there must be something, in fact. So there is a relationship between um, this statement and the world. That's a very um, basic assumption, any correspondence theory of truth. In his case, um, we assume that there is, um, first of all, um, the, the sentence has to do somehow with objects such as um, this hedgehog, Argo, with a relation, say, of line on, mm-hmm. and with another object, Bargo. And these three things exist, and these display a role in the truth of the statement um, Argos is lying on Bargo's lap. Um, but that's not enough, says Armstrong. So you need something else in the world for that sentence, in fact, that statement, that statement to be true. What's that? Well, it's a particular arranging, a particular arrangement or composition or combination of these three things together, which is itself a fourth thing. And that's very unintuitive to anybody in the street that has not studied much of philosophy, you would say. Um, the reason is that is in the nature of what you take the relation lying on to be. If, like Armstrong, you take the relation of lying on to be non-specific to particular things it attaches, it attaches to, so non-specific to the relata that he relates, then you could have uh, you could have, that's important, you could have in a world a hedgehog, Hargle, the same, very same hedgehog, Hargle, the very same place, Bargle's lap, and a relation of a line on. But that relation, technically speaking, 
we say, may be instantiated in something else. There could be a cup or your computer now. You're interviewing me. There is a computer lying on your desk, probably, mm. and, or a cup lying on your desk. That's a line. But it's another line. It's mm. somewhere else. There could be these three things, but not connected. And a world in which they are connected contains so a force object. They're being together. And that's itself, this being together of these three entities, it's a state of affairs, says Armstrong. I call it fact in the book to make it easy. But so Armstrong calls it a state of affairs, but in fact, it's a fact. How is he find it in the book? Mm-hmm. Um, and you need that. You need, you need this fourth object mm-hmm. to be the truth maker, so meaning the object in virtue of which the statement um, Hargo's line on Bargo's lap is true. Mm-hmm. Um, and you argue that um, we don't need to posit these four things, right? Yes, that's exactly what I what I are what I argue. I argue that we don't need to posit these four things once that you give up one of the premises of the argument, meaning the nature of the relation involved. So the need in this framework, um, the need of truth makers in the sense I sketched is such that given the fact that you accept relations that are non-specific to the relating question, mm-hmm. you need to have something that accounts for the being specific. So for this relation to be, in fact, uh, related or doing, being actually connecting these, they are the two things it, it relates. Mm-hmm. And... I say that is there is no need once that you uh, give up one premise, main the nature that has to do with the nature of the relation. So, sorry, you're saying that there's there are no, uh, I mean, to use Armstrong's own vocabulary of universals, that yeah. there are no sort of general, there are no relations, there are only just individual, you know, very individual relations. There's no sort of common relations. There's uh, in other words, everything is, you know, just like Argyle is a name, then is on top of is also a, a kind of weird name in a way. Uh, yes. So, um, indeed, while Armstrong is accepting universals, um, so relations and universals, um, I don't, or at least I argue in the book that uh, it's much better. It has um, fewer costs and higher benefits and more benefits not to do that, not to accept universals. But there is a complication here. Mm-hmm. What I, how I explain in chapter three, um, it's not so much the universals versus non-universal relations, or in other words, in other words, uh, following philosophers, the universals versus tropes. So the technical term that is used here is that if you only have, say, individual accidents or individual instantiations of relations, it are called relational tropes. Right. So, but it's not so much this opposition that is key in 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 the premise that that I think is 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 in question here, mm-hmm. but the specific uh, quality, or specific characteristic of of relations uh, that is its specificity. So it's being specific to a particular relata or not. 
And that's in itself a conceptual difference. So conceptually, it's not the same thing as being a universal or not. You could have universals that are relata specific. This is a very complicated situation. If you accept both universals and you accept that those universals are in fact specific to the relata um, in question, um, it's a bit of a complicated case, but I cannot exclude it on the basis of, of the analysis I give in the book. So you could have, in fact, uh, universal relations and those relations being specific to the very relata that they relate. In this case, you have no unity problem. Okay. Um, but is it, is it, is it that they're not sort of not actually, uh, multiply instantiated or that they, you know, that, yeah, as, yeah, what, what makes it the case that a universal would only be specific to some particular case? Well, probably, but this is the, 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 the kind of, uh, let's say this is the option I do not really develop in the book. Okay. What I say is that, um, this is conceptually possible. I'm not saying that it's, you know, we, ex- we, ex- we exclude that there is any possible theory based on, on this assumption that there are universal relations and they are relata specific. It's complicated because you would need to assume it would be quite costly, I think. But in itself, um, assuming that would solve the unity problem. So it would be such that the problem I, I, I call, well, in the tradition is called the unity problem that I discuss in chapter two. This, this won't arise. So I wanted to show up to show exactly what is exactly the responsible assumption and, and what, what is the thing that you assume in the world that makes it such that you have a unity problem. And that's the specificity of, of the relation, not, not necessarily universal or non-universal. Um, so to conclude, it is very complicated because you would need to assume a universal that has, say, a specific time-bound um, slot. So it would you would need to explain how, you know, how, how then... Are you then in a, in a totally determined world? The moment that universal that is specific exists, it would, you know, determine all the future uh, relation, a- actual instantiation of that relation uh, once it exists for, for a time one. It would, you know, it would come up with lots of time slots. In fact, you would need to assume something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so in in effect, it's sort of like, well, do we have the the argument for uh, these truth makers, you know, states of affairs with their non-mereological glue, in effect, depends on uh, a prior or concurrent um, uh, commitment to to universals. And you're sort of saying, well, we don't really need the universals, so we don't need the glued states of affairs either. Yes. Yeah, so if you if you insist that you have universals and they and they are non specific to the to the relata that 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 you need to glue, say, mm-hmm. then you get the unity problem. If you um, just do away with universals and then you accept tropes mm-hmm. uh, under certain certain say further assumptions, meaning that these tropes are also specific to the relata because. Mm-hmm. There are, there are, there's definitely complication. There are theories in which tropes are such that they could, in fact, 
appertain to different relata than they, they do. So you have to assume a specific strong, a specifically strong conception of, of tropes where the tropes really cannot possibly attach to another relata. And that's a strong assumption. And, and I, I do say that you have that assumption, in fact. And that still assuming that and, and going that way is the, in fact, the solution to be preferred, if at all you accept at all relations in the world. Okay. Um, you also mentioned the, 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 the correspondence theory of truth, which, you know, yeah. obviously Armstrong is, is a proponent of, and he's defending that. Um, um, and so, uh, you know, one of, one of the things I was, I was thinking was, uh, you know, you, you don't consider, at least as far as I recall at length, um, a, a deflationary theory of truth where you kind of like eliminate the need to posit you know, these things as truth makers, because there's no need to even have a truth maker role to begin yeah, with, exactly. because you don't even need a correspondence theory of truth. And I was wondering, did you, you know, consider that, uh, that option or just sort of say, well, you know, facts are playing this role of truth makers for correspondence theorists. And therefore, you know, I'm just going to kind of play their game. Yeah, so that's exactly that. That's a good question. That's exactly what I did. I mean, um, you could, of course, just say, "Look, if there is no role to be played, so the, the, no truth making role, and we don't need any truth makers, uh, as, and in particular, not in the version that Armstrong is assuming, then." Uh, you know, there is no fact of the matter in the sense that there is no need for anything to be playing that role. Um, you could, but that's of course a bit further away from this framework. So in philosophy, you need to be sort of um, careful or on, on, on stay, yeah, so problematize a certain framework, but not by, you know, taking a completely different way of doing things because then the dialogue is, is, is a bit between two different worlds, so to speak. Right. Um, I personally think I, I, I have some sympathies. If, if I have some sympathies for a correspondentist theory, that would be a very weak kind of correspondentist theory without truth makers, so to speak. That's something I'm quite conservative in that sense. I'm not even sure that I want to defend a correspondentist theory, but I know that I don't want to defend, in fact, a correspondence theory that has truth makers. Okay. Um, although you do, I think you do say later, um, that we, you know, either we do need something to play the role, or at least we need some sort of, well, was it, maybe we should get to that later on, you know, mm-hmm. how exactly we account for, you know, the the use of the truth predicate and, and so forth. Um, so let me, let me just, um, let's talk about the second type of fact, which is the prop, what, you know, what you call the propositional fact, and this one is, I guess, more closely associated with Frege, right? These sort of, you know, mind and language independent, um, uh, you know, abstract entities that, you know, have their meanings essentially and so forth. Um, um, so what's, this is a, this is a somewhat more complicated argument, um, which involves a lot more linguistics because, yeah. you know, here the idea, the, the starting idea is, well, we have these, uh, we have these sentences uh, that have that clauses in them, you know, so I, you know, believe that my computer is on the desk um, or I, 
or to to use two of the examples sort of that that you uh variations that you use um you know i i notice that the the computers on the desk versus i believe that mm-hmm. say the computers on the desk and so this in both cases you have notice that and then believe that and they seem to refer to uh, there seems to be some thing, you know, that, that that clause refers to because of various ways that you can talk about that. Um, so that's a, that's a very familiar picture of, you know, of, of propositions and why one needs to posit propositions, you know, as the reference of that clauses. Um, so can you say a bit about, you know, sort of more specifically maybe about the, the propositional fact, um, and then you, and then your your first the first stage of your argument involves uh, claiming that we don't need them because uh, that clauses don't refer; they're not referring terms. And then you go on from there. But let's just start with that part. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so um, this, as you said, um, these facts are a bit more. Obscure, I would say, and 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 the argument I use to dismiss them uh, is 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 very long. It's really really complicated. It takes about hundred pages. Um, the 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 general idea is this. Um, I I must say that I had some difficulties in the beginning when I was uh, so my attention was attracted to the fact that you know they were not just only composition of facts. Uh, so th- these are the, wa- the ones that I was very familiar with when I was writing my dissertation. I was trying to, to, you know, to, to, to know more about them. But then it was soon clear that um, philosophers also, when they talk about facts, they might talk about a different kind, a different type of facts. And, and those are typically... Uh, objects or entities that are linked to a certain use of language. Um, so, so in this case, facts have been assumed, and that's something that happened in, in a tradition that is, say, more a philosophy of language-oriented um, and, and, and nearer to certain studies in linguistics in the 60s and the 70s. So the, the notion of fact was, was used in, um, in combination or, say, in, in relation with the working of, um, as you mentioned, that clauses, so uses of um, that clauses in language. And the idea was, and is still very popular among philosophers, that there are at least certain uses of that clauses. In particular, um, some people have defended the idea that what you call, indeed, well, you gave an example of a factive that clause. So I noticed that there is a book on this table that the, the working of such, um, such a sentence, if true at least, um, would be such that these particular sentence would um, be constructed in such a way that there will be a subject, so an I, and then a verb, an action, a notice, or an event, and then something else, which is, say, the object of these noticing, um, which is um, that a book is on the table. And given the superficial appearance and use of this, the way in, in which this sentence is constructed, if true, it would seem um, a very intuitive, very plain thing to do, to take this, what is named by 
that this book is on the table of this construction to be an object. Maybe a special object, but an object nonetheless. Um, so a, a literature uh, originated in which um, the working of that clauses is taken very seriously and paired off with, indeed, um, objects, entities in, in a philosopher's say, toolbox. And, but what I discovered pretty soon was that these kind of facts, those that are supposedly referred to by at least some of that clauses, um, are not the same as the compositional facts in Armstrong style, but are different kinds of facts. And they are much, mm, say, they are, they, they have different characteristics. And it was quite difficult to, to understand exactly what characteristics they, they might have, or at least what philosophers thought of other philosophers in the literature thought of, of how they thought of, in fact, these facts. Um, and, they are, yes, they, they have some characteristics that are similar to propositions, those of propositions, um, considered to be, so propositions in this case are the ideal, um, they, they, they are ideal entities, so, uh, outside time and space, those ideal entities that, um, work as the meanings of, of statements or the meanings of, of, of sentences. Um, but, even if you assume these objects or propositions as the meanings of, of statements and so on, um, you still would distinguish, at least these philosophers did, distinguish between propositions and a different entity, um, which can be aptly called a proposition of fact. And these entities are different from composition of facts in the sense that, first of all, they are not considered to be in the world. More is maybe the figure that is uh, more strictly associated with, with proposition of facts. And um, a linguist in the 60s, so Zeno Wendler, that is still um, uh, referred to by some philosophers today, um, they characterize this, this fact as being unstructured. So that's different from the kind of facts we discussed in the beginning. So they are unstructured. They are not in any sense composed of, of objects and still they are about objects. This is similar to a proposition. So they have some quasi-semantics or uh, characteristics, meaning that th these are entities that are somehow related in a very unspecific way to objects in the world. They themselves, these propositional facts, are not part of the furniture of the world. They are not, not in the world. They do not have any causal uh, powers. So they are essentially ideal entities. But it is said there are, they are not statements. They are not uh, so language entities, but also not propositions as the meanings of those sentences or, or the content of those sentences. They are something else. And it's this last part that they are something else that I take issue with. So I say, look, um, if you assume, it, it's fine if you really want to assume propositions, although I, I, I deny that, that this is a sensible thing to do. But even though you insist that there are propositions, then there is no way that you can show that there are also Propositional facts. This is really implausible. So this is this is one thing. One of the things I say. Um, another thing I say is so the first part. Um, so the, the point about propositions. I do not defend propositions. In fact, um, what I, I say is that uh, well, the book is not 
call against propositions. That's all. Right. But uh, the the first part of the argument, the one that you mentioned so rightly, it's about uh, showing that that clauses do not refer. Um, that one is so. The, this is chapter four. That's the beginning of of the second part. This is really an argument that can be used against propositions as well. So it doesn't matter. It's really against any kind of entity that you take to be the referent of a that clause. And this is because it's really just about the fact that that clauses really are not the same kind of um, entity as, or say, a part of speech like uh, a name or anything like that. Really, they are not what philosophers call singular term. And singular terms are parts of speech, a, a typical example of which is a proper name, such as carry, Ariana, or bargo. Um, those names are such parts of speech that refer to objects out there. These are the typical uh, sort of middle-sized goods, uh, three-dimensional three objects that we have experience of around us in the world. And so that names, uh, you know, are used to refer to those objects is pretty, I'll say, I would not say entirely uncontroversial because in philosophy, of course, is basically nothing that is uncontroversial, but uh, let's say it's, it's fairly uncontroversial. Now, what is much more controversial, what I, I say it is, in fact, controversial, and it's very implausible, and I should be false, in fact, is that that clauses work like proper names. So they, they in fact, do not refer to anything. They do not pick up uh, an object in the world, no matter how special this object is. And that's so this uh, argument really it's rather articulated in in four different um, uh, say steps and this shows that neither propositions nor facts should be assumed then I have a fallback position and that's a position in which I say look even though you prove prove me wrong or you know you can show that after all that clauses do refer then that clauses um, would not in any case refer to facts, considering uh, you know, taking facts to be this very special proposition of facts as different from true propositions. Let me let me just before you move on to to the fallback positions. Um, yeah. So um, are you um, I don't know if you're using the term refer, you know, technically such that, you know, only names refer and, yep. you know, predicates denote or, or something like that. Yes, I do. Yeah. Y- you are. Okay. Um, so, uh, so let me just, so even if that clauses aren't singular terms or don't act as singular terms and therefore they don't refer, um, they could still correspond or denote the way, uh, you know, a, 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 uh, you know, a common term you know, as opposed to a name uh, might refer like, you know, cup, you know, cup, cup refers to and and then you can give some theory of, you know, the set of cups or the class of cups or or something along those lines. Right. Yeah. So um, is is part of your argument here um, and maybe it's just implicit that um, uh, you've already kind of taken away the idea that uh, even if they don't, even if they're not singular terms, right, they're also not general terms either? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think so. 
You're right. This is an excellent question. So I do not uh, really explicitly take issue with this because, indeed, as you're suggesting now, uh, it would follow pretty straightforwardly that um, the option of taking them to be general terms does not is not really viable. Um, I do something similar um, via so in the following step when I say that. Um, the predicate is a fact, is not a real predicate. Um, to be able to do what you suggest, so that you would take them to be common names, so predicates, or, or you know, use it to be as a common noun, such as cop. So, is a cop, for instance. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, there is no linguistic analogy between that clauses and 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 a word like cop or at least, uh, you know, you would have something like is a cop or you would have something like is at that blah, 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 which is ungrammatical. Um, so there are several aspects of, of, of the analogy. So you would first need to show that there is an, a linguistic analogy between the two kinds of expressions, which I think is really pretty difficult to show. I would say that it's a bit of a hopeless case. Um, and, and, and if it's, there is no analogy, which is one of the other, actually one of the, uh, one of the two criteria. So I, I mentioned one, um, one criteria for deciding about existence in the beginning of this conversation. And what pops up now is another criterion fact that I'm using throughout the book um, as, as a meta-philosophical, say, and meta-metaphysical criterion, which is a kind of a way to decide whenever uh, a certain object falls under a certain description or say whenever a certain object falls under a certain characterization such as and, and then you would for that you would need a definition or at least a kind of very plausible analogy so to show what you um, so, so your, your um, idea here was how about so um, say arguing that that clauses if they are not singular terms how about there might be you know um similar to a predicate or a common noun. Mm-hmm. And in this case, you would need to, to have a very plausible analogy between uh, the working of uh, the common nouns and the working of that clauses. And I think it's a pretty dim uh, perspective, mm-hmm. I would say. Okay. Um, so, so back to the, the fallback position. I mean, mm-hmm. you, so, so in, the, in the final two prongs of this particular argument against propositional facts, uh, so you... you you know, you sort of give a reductio world, you know, even if you accept that they are singular, you know, that that clauses are singular terms um, and they do refer, um, there's still no reason for us to posit facts or, or as you put it more specifically, there's no reason to posit um, factive propositions um, as opposed to just any other sort of or any proposition in general. In other words, there's no reason to think that there's this other special class. There's just, yeah. it, you know, you if you accept proposition, that's enough. You don't need facts. Yes, indeed. That is exactly what, what uh, the fallback position says. And so the, the way in which this fallback argument works is a bit different from 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 the, the, the way in which the argument against the referring power or capacity of that clause's work. And here I use a couple of, um, um, say, argumentative um, 
turns or moves from metaphysics, while the first say the, the, the first argument about that clause is, is really almost um, you don't need much metaphysics to, to have this go through. It's in fact linguistics and philosophy of language. And the second part, I mean, the former position really does require certain metaphysical considerations. For instance, uh, one of which is to show that it's, first of all, if you take that process very seriously, um, as, as a referee entities, the only kind of, um, objects or entities that you can pair off with them as being a referent are, if you insist that the, some of them at least are facts, are a very specific kind of facts, meaning the propositional facts, those that I characterize like that. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, and that's because of a certain restrictions that you need to put or, or say certain requirements that you must have to have, a, a, say, a viable kind of entity that will be referred to every that clause that you want to be referring, meaning, for instance, disjunctive that clauses. So given the way these facts are introduced, they need to be also referent of any true proposition. And you can have, of course, true propositions that are disjunctive. And then you will need to have that true proposition to be paired off in a very, very strong correspondentist um, theory of truth with a propositional fact, which is disjunctive. And those kind of facts cannot really possibly, cannot possibly be compositional ones. So that's one argument to show that, um, that, that shows that if you really take that clauses very seriously, to take these facts to be whatever is referred to by that clauses, those need to be special kinds of facts or the propositional ones. And now the problem starts because what I then argue is to show, look, there are no plausible ways. There is no plausible way to show that these so-called um, um, propositional facts are different from propositions, uh, purely Frege style, um, you know, as the third world kind of entities that work as the meanings of statements. Um, yeah, that's it. And, and the complication here is that um, it's a kind of um, um, reduction, a reduction, so to speak. So what I do is to show, look, I say that there is no way to distinguish the two, so to accept facts alongside uh, true propositions, and then I showed that six attempts uh, to block this move of mine uh, fail. So basically, there is no way to avoid this. That that's how I argue. Okay. Um, so one of the one of the one of the things that you conclude is um, uh, you you say that you, you do accept. I mean, there's so there's a number of roles, right? That you know, in the metaphysical chapter in the beginning about you yep. know what the various roles are we've mentioned you know specifically you know the role of, of playing the truth maker or the role of playing the referent of that clause and and there were some others as well yep. um so you know if you don't have you know these non-meriological states of affairs and you don't have propositions or at least effective propositions um uh what what are the roles that you think uh, you know that you think we still need to have filled, and and how how do you fill them if you don't have facts to fill them? Yeah, so um, I I think so. 
there are two roles uh, that say what I call these are semantical roles. That means that these are roles that entities can play in their say interplay or in the at the crossroads or intersection say between language, mind, and world. Um, so if you see this as a map, um, then you can play certain roles that given the relation that entities have in this, this, this space and this conceptual space uh, can play. For instance, um, I, I identify five of them. There may be more, but the, what is really relevant, for what's relevant here, there are like five. Um, so Trickmaker is one of them. As we, we, we talked about uh, truth makers, there are other roads. One is a truth bearer. So what object um, plays the role of the thing which is truth or the thing that can be called truth um, essentially or primarily? And these are, there are several candidates, say, to play this role, several actors to play this role. And these are all entities um, such as statements or judgments or claims or propositions um, and so on. I think the role of truth bearer, so of the thing or the entity that we call or that is true primarily or uh, in first instance, that needs to be played by an entity. Um, the meaning of a truth bearer, I'm not, I don't think there are really good reasons to think that has to be played by the entity. And the same for truth-making. So I, I would say truth-bearer, yes, we need to, to, to have it played by an entity. Mm-hmm. And the other object that um, other entity or a role, say, that needs to be fulfilled, I will say, is the subject of, of um, sentence subject in the sense of whatever is referred to by the subject of a sentence. So if you say, for instance, Carrie's interviewing Ariana, well, then Carrie um, the, is such that that's the part of speech in that sentence. And somehow in the world, it has to be an object that is picked up by or picked out by, by that sentence. Uh, so sorry, by, by the subject of the sentence, Carrie. Mm-hmm. I'm Still, I would say this too needs to be played. Uh, although the first time I would say, yes, we, we need an object to play. The second one, I'm, st- I'm still researching that, say. But <laughs> given a very minimalistic take on this, say, based on consensus um, of the most general theory and most general position we can have, I would say truth bearer needs to be played by an entity. Okay. Um, so let me just... Uh uh, ask about uh, your your nominalism. Um, so you know you've mentioned. I mean, obviously, this is not a book against propositions. It's it's just against facts. You know, but there, obviously, there's there's a very strong current of 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 nominalism here, where you mm-hmm. know we don't need universals and we probably don't Definitely. need propositions mm-hmm. and and yes. you know a lot of these you know strange creatures in the in the philosopher's cave and and um, so I was just wondering. Uh, you know, sort of, it's a two-pronged sort of question. Um, you know, when you say there are no facts, um, are you just are you sort of being an eliminativist about the, or just a sort of a reductionist that whatever, you know, we we don't. So as you put it before, when we were discussing Armstrong, you know, it's like there's uh, there was Argyll, there was being on top of, and then there was the other person or 
hedgehog, whatever. Yeah. Um, and then and then there was no need to posit a fourth thing. And yeah, that, that kind of sounds like, you know, that seems like we don't need anything over and above. Um, uh, we can, if you want to talk about the facts, you know, they can just be, you know, metaphysically reduced to these other things. There's no need to posit something else. Yeah. So I was, uh, you know, so one aspect of the nominalism question is, you know, are you a limitativist or reductivist about um, about facts? And then yeah. just more generally, um, are you, you know, how deep or why does your nominalism go? Well, that's, I would say, pretty deep. Um, w- w- one thing is that, so I, I have sympathies for a position that is really pretty radical about um, so nominalism and in general not there being any non-merological uh, composition in the world. I do not defend a very radical position in the book because I don't need to. Mm-hmm. So if the book was about, oh yeah, what I think about this or that and anything and philosophical theories, that would have to include a more radical position. But for facts here, I really didn't need to, to go that far. Um, so so there are my sympathies and, and, and there are also things that you can responsibly say. And I try in the book to say things that I think I can responsibly say, which are two different things. Um, the, your question about the reductionism or um, the eliminat- eliminativism, um, I would say that, again, I, my sympathies are for the elimination, so the eliminativism position. But um, I think you can also go for given certain assumptions and given certain premises or certain frameworks, you can very well go for a reductionist position of facts uh, with the proviso that you accept that there is no one-on-one correspondence, that whatever you can call a fact uh, would be reduced to the very same object all the time for every single mention you make of a fact. Um, If you go for reductionism, what you can do is Okay, look, uh, when we talk about facts, you can take it even very seriously uh, with the proviso that um, sometimes you accept that this entity, uh, the entity that would correspond to this talk um, would be an event. Or um, in another case, the entity we are talking about might very well be given a certain framework, um, a meteorological complex. And in a, even in another case, you would have a complete elimination or complete, say, um, take on the use of the word fact as to simply being a linguistic alternative to, you know, saying something else. Meaning, you know, the discovery, um, whatever, what we can say. Oh, yeah, you had a, a, an example at the beginning when you said, look, um, when you say, the newspapers are full of facts, right? And they say the earth revolves around the sun. You could say um, the earth revolves around the sun is a fact. If you really want to emphasize that, that this is a particular kind of statement, but you could very well simply say the earth revolves around the sun. Mm-hmm. So in this case, is a fact it would be used for emphasis. So in some cases, you would not need the word. In some cases, you would. But then there would be no one-one correspondence between the word fact and whatever I think that should be paired off in the world with it. Okay. So, it, I mean, it kind of sounds like a, a deflationary f- theory of facts, you know. Yeah. Of. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> um, 
although our use of of is a fact is is not nearly as systematic as our our use of the truth predicate so that might be a difficulty yes. yeah it might very well be and and i don't think there is indeed uh, one one saying whenever so one one um uh, pairing off or correspondence between oh whenever you say is a fact what you mean or you could substitute for every occurrence of this word something else mm-hmm. i think here really a plural so pluralist account of what could be paired off if you really really want to take language that seriously <laughs> then then you would need certainly a kind of much more pluralistic attitude to it okay so i think we have one time for one sort of final substantive question um how do what are, what do you see as the main implications of your view of facts for related you know issues in philosophy of mind um mm-hmm. philosophy of language so this is a wonderful question. I would say that um, it's also a very difficult one because so philosophy of mind, of course, is one thing. And, and, and I tend to see it as really quite, it should be far more removed from philosophy of language as it is normally treated, in fact. Um, it's difficult to say. I would certainly say that the implication, the, the, the more obvious and, and direct implication is that you know, n- not to take seriously any talk of propositional attitudes, not in the way in which um, propositional attitudes are normally construed, mm-hmm. meaning, as I as I mentioned, um, you know, that whenever we have a construction such as I believe that um, this book is on the table, um, you wouldn't, you, I would say, no, you cannot take it seriously, seriously mm-hmm. as, as being, you know, a, 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 an assertion in which you have a subject, uh, a, an action or an event and an object. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Um, what There are also finer things that I'm not really sure about. And so does that mean that any kind of mental content would be skewed, that, that you know, you cannot accept that, that that's not true? I mean, that doesn't follow, not necessarily. I would need, you know, another book to, to show that or not. Um mm-hmm. And the philosophy of language, of course, so propositions are, that's the connection you might want to have. So in this case, if you also in philosophy of language, you want to rely on propositional attitudes in, in the sense that to take also those constructions severely, also in philosophy of language, then yes, the, the direct um, consequence would be that you can't really that lightly accept them. You would need to go for an alternative reading of such instructions. Uh, right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, I think we're we're out of time. So I'd like to end with a, a question about where where you go from here. I mean, are, are you are you pursuing some of the you know other issues raised by this book, or are you turning to something else entirely? No, so so yeah. Um, one one thing is that, as I said, I started with the um, in fact the history of of of, of the notion of fact, and so I have. A, I, I plan at a certain point to publish a book or booklet on, on it to show when facts really emerged in this sense of compositional ones in history. Um, that's somewhat related. At least I, I will use um, my sort of definition of fact, which I put forward in this book, a compositional fact in, in that other book. The other thing I, I want to go on with is the philosophy of linguistics. Mm-hmm. So more methodological questions related to what can linguistics say or 
can what we as philosophers of language can say about linguistics or so that that route. And the third thing um, is, is is much more general approach to um, tracing concepts through time. So what what I'm doing now, I've just gotten a project that that would do that for the next five years is tracing concepts through time by using computational tools. Well. Very interesting. <laughs> I look forward to uh, to hearing about that project, so or all of them actually, but that one in particular seems very very interesting. Thank um, you. So, well, we we are out of time. So, I do want to thank you again for uh, for being so uh, uh, open about your book and and talking with us about it. And um, I wish you luck with your your future projects. Thank you very much, and thanks for interviewing me. Okay. Bye bye. Hi. You've been listening to my interview with Ariana Betty, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Amsterdam. We've been talking about her new book, Against Facts, which is just out from the MIT Press. This is New Books in Philosophy. I'm Carrie Figdor. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening. <laughs>